Okay, we've got third. I think we, we've got now 30 participants in building quite fast, 35. And I've got us as now streaming live on Facebook. So I suggest we now um, restart. This is this is the online world, isn't there? There's nobody to say five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, you have to just jump in. Okay, I'm 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 starting now. Uh, uh, welcome everybody. Welcome uh, um, to this uh, um, Middle East Center hosted session: environmental justice in the Middle East, activism, resistance, and decolonization, which is uh, um, part of the decolonizing LSE events for this term. Um, decolonizing LSC is a collective of staff, students, uh, the whole school community thinking about decolonizing sort of a challenge across a whole range of, act of activities, teaching, research, um, how we relate to each other on campus. Um, and if you're interested, uh, take a look, just search decolonizing LSC. This event is also co-organized with uh, Jedalia which is an e-magazine published by the Arab Studies Institute. Um, so again, uh, we're very much uh, happy to co-organize this event with Jedalia and the Arab Studies Institute. Uh, my name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the Middle East Center here at LSE. Um, let me say, I know many of you are, are quite experienced participants of these events. So well, I'll run through the format. Uh, how we're going to go. I think it's going to be a great. I'm really looking forward to this session, by the way. And I, I haven't seen the, the presentations of the participants. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. So what we're going to do is we have three uh, excellent participants. I shall shortly introduce them uh, to you. Um, they will, each of them is going to speak for up to 15 minutes each. Um, and we, we will hold questions until the end, until after they've spoken, of course. Um, when, after they've spoken, we're going to have, uh, I'll, I'll just say maybe a, 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 a five minutes of some discussion, some comments, some perhaps picking out some common themes or questions. Um, and then we'll go to uh, questions from the, um, I was going to say questions from the floor, which is a real world equivalent. So I'm going to say questions from the virtual floor. Yes. And if you would like to ask a question, the format is we ask you please to type your question into the question and answers box, which you'll see at the bottom, the icon on the bottom right on the uh, Zoom screen. And what will happen then, we'll see how many questions come through and I will direct questions to the speaker, or whichever speaker, if it's an individual speaker or all the speakers. And um, um, bear with me, I will try to make sure we get as many questions as possible uh, asked during that period of time. Sometimes I might have to combine questions if we have lots of questions, but we'll do our best to be as open and inclusive as possible. Um, this event, I should have said this straight away, is being recorded. So it's, uh, it's also being live streamed on uh, Facebook uh, around the world. And uh, it will also be available after the event as an audio podcast through the LSE Middle East Center uh, website. So um, thanks to all of you uh, out there for joining us uh, this evening in London and other times around the world. And we look forward to your participation. Um, at the end of the webinar, there's gonna be a short survey. You'll be asked to answer some questions about the webinar. This is just in terms of the Middle East Center getting feedback on these events and how we can do them in a way which is 
as, as effective as possible. Um, if you want to tweet about the event, then you can use the hashtag, um, hashtag decolonizing LSE, as one word, or hashtag LSE Middle East, as one word, okay? Um, now to the important part, which is welcoming uh, the speakers. I will introduce the uh, speakers in the order which they will talk to you. Um, um, I'll start with Carly first because she is going to say some words, uh, uh, introductory words also before we go into the sort of formal presentations. Um, so uh, uh, Carly Quackow is a, is a PhD candidate. She's a colleague here at LSE um, and a, a Judge Rosalind Higgins Scholar in the Department of Law at LSE. Um, her writing uh, research activism focuses on international law environmental justice and human rights in the context of statelessness and displacement. Um, she's a special projects managing editor and co-editor of the environment page at Jedalia. Jedalia is, by the way, a fantastic e-magazine. If you don't know it, go and search it. It's got a wonderful environment section, which I, I regularly consult. There's the advert, yeah. Uh, her research is on the Palestinian West Bank, on South Africa and Greece. It's focused on uh, various issues, including law, the politics of access to water, refugee rights, and justice for people affected by exposure to environmental toxins. You will see, as I introduce each of the speakers, why they are the perfect speakers for tonight, and how I think with the diversity of, of experience and, and, and knowledge, uh, we're gonna have a really good discussion. Um, the next one um, after, uh, so that's Carly. The, um, Dr. Muna Dijani, I'm pleased to welcome, someone I know very well for, 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 for many years, is a research officer at the LSE Middle East Centre, working on a collaborative, collaborative research project with Bezait University, titled Mapping Memories of Resistance, the Untold Story of the Occupation of the Golan Heights. Uh, for over nine years, a decade, Muna has worked in the fields of environment development in Palestine, uh, done many, many things uh, involving grassroots initiatives, NGOs, universities, government bodies, looking at social environmental assessments, hydropolitics, advocacy, community participation. She's a, a member, a policy member of Al-Shabaka, the uh, Palestinian Policy Network. She's contributed to a series of research projects, uh, including looking at the hydro-political baseline of the, of the Upper Jordan River, a, a project looking at transboundary climate security, climate vulnerability, and rural livelihoods in the Jordan River Basin. And she's had a, she has a PhD awarded from the Department of Geography and Environment uh, at LSC. Um, and her PhD research uh, looked at the distinctive livelihood practices by which farming acquires political subjectivity in the occupied Syrian Golden Heights. She's particularly interested in that, in that PhD. The PhD, by the way, another advert is available on the LSE website, uh, publicly accessible. So I, I, if you're interested, please go there. Particularly interested in the idea of samud, uh, steadfastness, or staying on the land as a form of uh, cultural resistance, a concept which might well uh, 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 pop up in the, in the presentations and discussions. And then um, delighted to have um, uh, um, from, from Beirut, uh, uh, professor Mona Harb was a professor of urban studies and politics uh, at the American University of Beirut. She's also a uh, uh, research director of the Beirut Urban Lab at AUB. Uh, she's, author, she's author and co-editor of a series of books, um, including 
actually one's in French, I'll give you the English translation, Hezbollah in Beirut from the suburbs of the city in uh, 2010, and co-author of Leisurely Islam, Negotiating Geography and Morality in Shiite South Beirut, uh, in, uh, with Princeton University Press published, and co-editor uh, with colleagues on local government and public goods, assessing decentralization in the Arab world, which came out in 2015, and Refugees as City Makers uh, um, in 2018. Her ongoing research investigates the public domain and urban vacancies, local governance and displacement, as well as urban activism and oppositional politics. So I think from that biographical introduction, you would agree with me, and I thank each of the speakers for making themselves available tonight uh, uh, in terms of the, uh, this particular panel. Um, um, I think we have a, a, a great diversity of interest, research interests um, on environmental justice in the Middle East. So with that, I'm going to move over to, to Carly now. It's going to say a little bit more about the topic before the speakers begin their presentations. Carly. Thank you so much, Michael, for that very uh, warm, welcoming introduction and welcome everyone. Uh, we're so fortunate not only to have the director of the LSE Middle East Center chairing our event today, but to have Michael Mason with us as an expert in the geography and environment of the Middle East. So really looking forward to Michael's interventions as well in the discussion. Uh, this is an exciting collaboration. As, as Michael said, I think he covered most everything um, between the Middle East Center, decolonizing LSE and Jadalia and the Arab Studies Institute. And we would just like to note again that we're especially delighted to be part of Decolonizing LSE's event series. This event is the final one actually in an exciting October lineup covering everything from political economy and the pandemic to empire and food studies and today of course covering environmental justice. So we're thrilled to be part of this series and Decolonizing LSE's work was really the catalyst for putting on this event. So stay tuned for more events and projects that will be coming up. Also, a special thank you to Nadine Almanasfi uh, from the Middle East Center for coordinating everything in the lead up today. It's really deeply appreciated. And at Jadalia and ASI, thank you to Bassam Haddad and MK Smith and the entire team for all their support. As Michael shared, our discussion today will focus on environmental justice and its relationship with activism, resistance, and decolonization, examining how we define environmental justice and the often excessively narrow confines that limit the meaning and scope of environmental studies as a field. So we're really interested to further discuss questions in relation to uh, Muna and Mona's work and my work about how resistance to colonial greenwashing is a fundamental part of a broader decolonizing struggle, about how the US and Eurocentric discourse on environmental justice is being pushed back against by indigenous perspectives, also about how disaster recovery can be reclaimed by the people actually impacted, and questions regarding how urban inclusivity can be more prominently appreciated as part of environmental justice discourse course and a whole lot more as well. So I'm honored to be here with Muna Dijani and Mona Harb, two outstanding scholars who I cannot wait to hear from and who will be focusing on some of the often less highlighted components of environmental justice in the Middle East. And I'll speak a bit later about environmental injustice and international law, um, focusing on Iraq and some other examples. But first, it's really a pleasure to turn things over to Muna as our first presenter. Um, thank you. Um, thank you, Michael, for the introduction. Thank you, Carly and uh, Mona. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to be part of this event. Uh, I wanted to extend my thanks to all those mentioned uh, decolonizing LSE for providing the platform and the Middle East Center for hosting, Jadalia as well. 
Um, um, and uh, really excited to have this conversation today uh, with two, uh, with two, all of the great uh, scholars today. Um, just in, for the sake of time and uh, just hopefully, um, I'll try to touch on a few topics uh, that I find really interesting uh, when speaking on of, of environmental justice in the Middle East and hoping that the question and answer will generate more specific kind of context uh, or maybe examples of case studies or things we can uh, go further into. Uh, but I wanted to take uh, that this opportunity to uh, really when we to talk about what environmental justice actually entails, what can what indigenous uh, scholarship actually uh, helps us illuminate that hasn't been, as Carly said, hasn't been done in, in the limited scholarship on environmental justice, especially um, in the Middle East. And I want to start by saying um, environmental imaginaries in the Middle East has been really confined uh, by, you know, colonial legacy. The fact that, you know, the Middle East has been kind of um, always portrayed as this desolate place, uh, a barren land that, that requires rejuvenation, that requires, you know, the hand of the colonizers to come and harness natural resources, to invest uh, and capitalize on these resources and to turn the desert uh, green. Um, and that has been kind of a fixed uh, imaginary uh, of the Middle East for, uh, for, for so long and it still continues until today. Um, and that very problematic uh, colonial uh, imaginary has dominated uh, not only how others see uh, the Middle East, but also how Middle East communities and societies have come to see themselves. And I'll explain that in a bit. And so this idea of modernization has, uh, you know, really dominated the way we think about the environment in general. Um, when we speak of environmental justice, there are two strands that um, I think it's really important to dist uh, distinguish between. I won't go into details, but if we look at environmental justice from kind of the Western-centric perspective, um, environmental justice emerged as uh, a way to uh, address inequalities um, that have been uh, shaped by social institutions and capitalist mode of production and colonial legacies of resource exploitation um, and dispossession by accumulation. Uh, and ha that has distributed harms uh, and um, to, to uh, um, uh, communities of color, to indigenous groups, to marginalized uh, segments of societies. And the whole contention of environmental justice is how can we actually right that wrong? Uh, through institutions and through the rule of law and uh, on a wider scale through, in, through global environmental governance. Um, but what this environmental justice, uh, like this very Western-centric environmental justice definition keeps separating is separating nature from humans and thinking always that humans will always have an upper hand on nature. Um, and that I think is really an important distinction between environmental justice that uh, also maybe acquires tools maybe that are more um, technical uh, and managerial tools to, uh, you know, uh, eliminate, uh, to reduce or eliminate the harm done by uh, those systems of inequalities and oppression. Um, indigenous scholarship, on the other hand, I think that I find really, um, really inspiring and motivating and so rich, um, actually traces back environmental injustices to colonialism. And I think this is really important because when we speak of environmental justice in the kind of conventional uh, scholarship and also in the activism and mobilization on the ground, we don't really see that. We don't really uh, find addressing 
uh, colonial legacy to be an important part of it. So indigenous scholarships, uh, including Kyle White and others have talked a lot about it and said that actually in environmental injustices stem back from the genocide that settler colonial and colonialism, colonialism projects have in, instilled on indigenous people, uh, the extraction of their resources, their exclusion from those natural resources and their attempt to eliminate uh, the, the indigenous population. Um, and this has also kind of, I think the, the biggest environmental injustice that he refers to Kyle White, who is an indigenous scholar, he speaks about <clears throat> the socio-ecological uprooting of indigenous communities from their context. So he never separates and indigenous uh, scholarship never separates nature from humans. Uh, and it, we are part and parcel of the same socio-ecological uh, network and dynamics. Um, so this abrupt, I think, for especially if we want to understand um, environmental injustice in the Middle East, in settler colonial contexts like Palestine, for instance, and the occupied Syrian heights uh, that, I'm in, that I work on, but I think also in, uh, in, uh, in authoritarian regimes uh, that have been um, also practicing uh, and, uh, instill, and uh, practicing environmental injustice through their policies and institutions, <clears throat> I think this is a very important distinction. So the fact that in injustice has actually um, has been at the core of it has, has been kind of our detachment from our natural resources, detachments from our stewardship and connection, responsibilities and roles to that natural, uh, to that, you know, socio-ecological uh, uh, context. Um, and I think another way to see it that uh, it's, it's part of a, a work that me and Michael worked on is kind of settler colonialism as a, a tool of, uh, of uh, misrecognition. So the fact that up, uh, uprooting communities from their uh, from their land uh, basically uh, enacts uh, acts of misrecognition that ultimately tra transform societies completely. So we cannot think of environmental injustice only as harm inflicted on the environment, let's say uh, on pollution, let's say of streams or exploitation of water resources, uh, um, or for instance, um, environmental just injustice in, um, inflicted on humans themselves, whether in their um, um, for their own health or public health of the community, we cannot think of this separately. We have to kind of really look at the root causes of that injustice. And I do feel like, and I do uh, think that uh, indigenous scholarship on the topic is really enriching and uh, Middle East studies uh, has a lot to learn <clears throat> from that. Um, I'll share with you just uh, only three slides. Sorry, I don't have many. So. If we, if we bring it back to, to Palestine, to the Jordan River Basin, a topic that I have been working on quite a bit, that has gained a lot of uh, you know, traction and interest from different water scholarships in water diplomacy and water conflict and cooperation scholarship. Um, however, it has really focused on water as a resource or water as a source of contention uh, of conflict and cooperation. It had never looked uh, at water as the multiplicity of it and, and uh, the injustice it inflicted uh, upon us as Palestine, speaking as a Palestinian, uh, the, the injustices inflicted upon being actually detached from that socio-ecological context. So I look at these pictures, part of like um, the work that I try to do is to kind of really focus on social history of water. 
Um, and I look at those images uh, and I see relationships that, that have been lost. Uh, I see a socio-ecological network uh, uh, of responsibilities, of uh, benefits and, uh, and contributions to, to the, this environmental system that has been lost today. I see also um, um, relations uh, and, uh, and anecdotal uh, uh, richness that also, as for me as a Palestinian, that I don't really feel as Palestinians who have been there at that time and place. For me, the Jordan River Basin became a border like uh, Samer Lafout, who is a, a great scholar on, on water speaks of as well. So the fact that water becomes uh, a border, water, uh, the Jordan River becomes a water, it becomes a, an over an exploited river that uh, automatically detaches Palestinian from, from it. And the fact that we cannot even reach it adds to that complexity. So this ontological and epistemological uprooting uh, becomes really, really uh, magnified. Um, so, and that this brings us to environmental injustices of today, uh, of, you know, that confined geographical space that have come to define what Palestine is. And we start framing environmental injustices in the fact that we cannot get access to water as Palestinians, the fact that Gaza uh, is living under inhumane uh, conditions when it comes to, uh, to more than 97% of its water being unfit for human consumption, uh, or the fact that uh, water is being abstracted at, uh, at higher rates for Israeli illegal settlers, where also Israeli illegal set settlements and factories are dumping waste into uh, Palestinian uh, areas. And that causes uh, the harm that we have talked about before. Again, this I think this picture is not uh, complete without uh, talking about um, uh, without talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, this um, environmental injustice that is uh, um, basically that we have been det detached, that have we, ha we have been cut off from our socio-ecological socio context that White refers to. Um, and I feel like there is so much uh, potential for us to start thinking differently about environmental injustice if we, if we take on this uh, way. And another thing that, again, is in the context of settler colonialism, um, we see a lot of attempts of greenwashing. Uh, so Israel is really famous for uh, its attempt to, uh, um, to, to carry out these uh, acts of, of, uh, of greenwashing. So basically, the idea is that uh, Israel invests in or portrays itself as kind of the, the bastion of, uh, uh, of, of environmentalism, uh, the fact that it has environmental laws to protect Palestinian, uh, to protect people from picking what they called herbs, uh, herbs uh, from, uh, from Palestinian mountains. Our Palestinians uh, have always uh, collected za'atar, akub, those indigenous plants uh, that, that grow uh, wild in the mountains. Uh, these are practices that have been carried uh, over from generations. But today, environmental protection uh, um, uh, authorities in Israel try to uh, criminalize it since the 1970s. And through efforts of Palestinian uh, activists and attorneys, such as uh, Rabia Irbariye, uh, the fact that this has been uh, now uh, contested in court. Uh, but the fact that Israel is afraid of Palestinians rerouting themselves in the land, act, uh, acting upon this environmental justice that has been inflicted upon them when they, when they were uprooted basically from that. And I think this form of environmental injustice is as important as the environmental injustices that we today focus on and emphasize in terms of distribution of harms and benefits. Um, same thing 
when we speak about you know green colonialism, um, and I think here this uh, the 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 example of the occupied Golan Heights, the Syrian uh, Golan Heights, is is another way to to also look at it as an environmental injustice because the right to to uh, the right to resourcehood is denied for uh, the Jaulanis, the Golan Heights residents who are Syrians who identify as Syrians and who have refused Israeli uh, citizenship uh, in the 1980s and today they come they are confronted they have been confronted for decades uh, around uh, you know the, the exploitation of their water resources, but today they face another uh, green colonialism act uh, where uh, win a big wind turbine uh, company uh, with with the support of the Israeli government is trying to uh, to put it put the wind turbines or install them in in the in the last bits remaining bits of their agricultural lands and this contestation happens and continues to happen to reclaim rights to uh, resources and and to reclaim rights to belong uh, and again to uh, you know confront this environmental injustice um, so I think these examples are really important. Uh, and one, one other, another thing that also when we try to decolonize the way we actually uh, to actually uh, produce knowledge about environmental uh, context in, in the in the Middle East in Palestine specifically, we really need to be um, uh, aware that um, this contestation. Uh, the settler colonial project is still doing that on a daily. So it has a, it's not an event, you know, the, the famous saying like settler colonialism uh, um, is not uh, an event, but a structure. Um, uh, it is true because uh, today, I don't know if some of you heard, but in the middle of, you know, the olive harvest season, which is a very sacred season for Palestinians, it's the last, I, I would say, I would claim it's the last remaining uh, uh, socio-ecological um, like existing context that they can actually re reunite with their with their traditional knowledge and uh, with their land. Uh, and what happens is that Israeli illegal settlers come and cut off trees. There has been a case I don't know if you saw it online of uh, of a farmer coming to find two hundred of his olive trees being cut off. And and this is kind of a, a testament of how settler colonial um, uh, institutions and practices continue to to carry out this elimination of uh, of the indigenous and cutting off their um, their their um, rootedness to the land. So that that form of environmental justice should form the basis to which uh, we actually uh, make sense of uh, of environmental uh, injustices and find mechanisms through which to address them that do not really rely only on technological solutions or on on managerial solution even an institution, but kind of always uh, you know contest with and uh, um, and and really. Uh, um, yeah, like contest with uh, with those uh, with those realities and that dispossession that lies underneath um, underneath all of uh, all of these injustices. And I would like to speak more about you know climate change activism uh, and how can we also decolonize that, especially when it comes to the Middle East and Palestine specific. But I might leave it for the question and answer because I know uh, time is short. But thank you uh, for listening. Thank you very much. I mean, actually, that was perfect timing, 15 minutes. So yeah, but we can we can follow up some of those other issues, perhaps in the in the questions and the discussion. So now we move over to, 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 uh, to Professor Mona Hub. Uh, okay, so good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be with everyone. And thanks for the organizers. 
um, I'm uh, really uh, happy to be able to engage with such an important topic from my perspective as an urbanist and um, someone who works with urban planners. Uh, I feel a bit of an intruder, given I don't really work on environmental justice as such. So when Carly approached me and invited me to contribute, I wasn't really sure why, but then she explained that she thought that frameworks that I work with are complementary to the ones she uses. And um, I'm going to try to share with you today some of these frames. I think this is what Carly was referring to when um, we, well, she was insisting that I do have a lot to say on the topic. So I'm going to mainly uh, structure my talk in three points. Uh, first, I'm going to uh, discuss how critical urban studies and progressive urban planning adopt social and environmental uh, justice as key values and share why a political practice of urban planning and advocacy planning are relevant frameworks to environmental justice studies, if there's such a thing. I will then uh, share with you how um, I have been teaching with others at EUB and practicing and researching what I term political urban planning for the past couple of decades. And I will finally focus on the present disaster that we're living in Beirut in the aftermath of the August 4 port blast. Uh, and I will consider this a key moment through which we are experimenting with the practice of advocacy planning towards advancing a more inclusive city and a protected uh, public environment. Two words on, you know, critical urban studies and progressive planning as a practice. So these are branches of urban studies and planning that are largely inspired from feminist and neo-Marxist frameworks of thought. So they inform the work of urban researchers and planners who position themselves as what they call advocacy planners. So they openly advocate for rights and they advocate for the rights of the most disadvantaged groups. And as the practice of advocacy planning uh, transformed over time, they started also uh, defending threatened built unnatural environments. So mainly advocacy planners and people engaged in this political type of planning denounce what is referred to in urban studies and urban planning as the growth machine mainly how predatory and extractive forces of capitalism, the ones that Muna Darjani was mentioning earlier, seek accumulation and transform the social and communal value of land into a value of exchange that is commodified. And here I'm really paraphrasing a lot of people who talk about this in much better terms from David Harvey and beyond. So advocacy planning is a practice that started with Paul Davidoff and Jan, Jane Jacobs in North America, and it has inspired generations of planners throughout the world. It also informed a lot of the literature and Norm Krumholz, among others, have been pushing for planners to embrace a political role in their practice and to speak truth to power, to use their position to seek the redistribution of power and resources in just and fair ways to redress inequalities or at least work towards this, to give voice and support to disadvantaged groups so they can organize against this growth machine, to protect the built and natural environment from predatory extraction, and to seek to advance inclusive cities and regions 
So in other words, really to advance an agenda of social and environmental justice. So these urbanists have been pushing planners to engage in an overtly political urban planning and to do that through their teaching if they're involved in uh, academia, through their research if they do that, and through their practice if they are professional practitioners. And they even encourage them to consider engaging in direct politics through, and running, through running for elections, for instance, uh, uh, national, municipal, uh, syndicate elections, and through organizing and th uh, towards collective action. So as such, we have been seeing more and more planners engage in struggles and social movements all over the world. And their roles as activists and social movement organizers, I think is very interesting to document. I believe they have skills and competencies that allow them to imagine, and I emphasize that this word, to imagine and visualize other possible worlds. And this imagining, this uh, visualizing, this envisioning of what some people would term as utopias, because these are words that don't exist, but that are possible alternate realities. I think they are key for the work of political action and towards imagining change. And here I'm referring to, to works of social movement theories that emphasize this importance of utopia and collective action and this imagination. Um, additionally, planners who are advocate planners who embrace politics and are openly against predatory capitalism play a very valuable role in understanding the power structures that configure urban and spatial planning policies or infrastructural policies that, that you know, seek to extract resources from land, be it built or natural land. And then, and accordingly, they can contribute to helping um, uh, struggles and activists and people engaged in social movements to identify ways to disrupt, contest, and potentially dismantle these power configurations. And we have some, seen some cases of successful struggles where planners have been engaged. It's difficult to relate the success to the roles of planners, but I suspect that uh, they play a key role in advancing these struggles towards uh, disruption and dismantling of such projects. So I'm thinking of anti-dam movements in India, in Brazil, even in Lebanon. Uh, I'm thinking also of anti-eviction housing movements in Europe and the US uh, who, that have been quite successful in their quests. So that concludes my main first point, which is why and how the framework of critical urban studies and progressive planning practice is relevant to environmental justice and how it can further enrich its study. Now, moving to, to Lebanon as someone who's in urban studies and politics and who has been living and working here for most of my life, I have been using, adapting, and I would say experimenting with this framework as a teacher, as an activist, and as a researcher. And we live in a country which is a real laboratory, I would say, to study uh, the predatory forms of capitalism. We are quite rich with a lot of resource extraction examples since the Civil War, but even before and much more in its aftermath. 
people who are familiar with Lebanese uh, sectarian politics know that we have an oligarchy that have parasited very astutely public institutions, that uh, it repurposed these public institutions for its own interests, that uh, this, this oligarchy developed an elaborate growth machine in partnership with banks, firms, real estate developers, that have financialized most of the built and natural environment of our cities and regions in our small country. So we have that background where, you know, there's so much to do and so much to study and work with, but there's also so much to struggle against. And uh, Lebanon and metropolitan Beirut specifically is quite rich with political and social groups that have been organizing for decades to try to challenge and disrupt this growth machine. So these organized groups include environmentalists, urban activists who have been increasingly better mobilized over the past 15 years. Uh, I would place the date around 2006 uh, with the Israeli war on Lebanon. And they've been demanding and making requests for an inclusive and just city in, um, in so many ways, actually. Um, and they're also demanding to protect urban and cultural heritage and public spaces that would be freely accessible to all. So a very strong, I would say, uh, discourse of uh, uh, social justice uh, and environmental justice, though these terms of environmental justice are not used in Arabic per se, but there is uh, I would say narratives around this that we can link back to the values of environmental justice. So at AUB with many colleagues and students and peers, we have been involved in several of these mobilizations, especially in the making of campaigns to fight the privatization of the coast and of public space, the gentrification of neighborhoods, uh, the militarization of the city, uh, we have been involved in demanding uh, uh, more inclusion of refugees, of people with disabilities, uh, of migrants, of women in processes of city making. Um, particularly, we've been very uh, involved in informing the process of reconstruction because, again, we live in Lebanon and we've had several wars. So the, uh, after the Israeli war on Lebanon in 2006, we were quite engaged in that process of rebuilding and we try to advocate for a more inclusive uh, process. Uh, we also were engaged in a campaign against the building of uh, the highway of Fuad Boutrous and Ashrafiye in the campaign for the protection of the coast of Dariet Raushi. And we also experimented with direct politics by participating in the municipal elections in Beirut in 2016 with Beirut Madinati. And we've been contributing to numerous protests and uprising, especially the latest uprising of October 2019, where we were engaged in multiple teachings in the squares, in addition to informing the drafting of political programs with a spatial dimension and an urban, uh, urban components. So uh, this is a little bit the context, I would say, that informs the work we're doing now with the recovery. So uh, the Beirut port blast uh, of August 4 is really an extraordinary, extraordinary moment where we are again mobilized. Uh, it's most extraordinary actually, and in so many ways, I don't really have time nor uh, 
I would say, even energy to dwell why and how. But I'm sure many people uh, who are attending uh, and contributing would know uh, why these struggles are so difficult and so much more difficult the more we do them. Yet, here we are engaged in another reconstruction process, another attempt to advocate for a good city, for an inclusive city, for a just city. So this time we're operating from a structure we managed to institutionalize in 2018, the Beirut Urban Lab at the American University of Beirut, which is a place through which we want to enable an ecosystem of change towards a just, inclusive, and viable city, I would even say cities uh, throughout Lebanon. So we're doing that uh, again through teaching, research, and critical engagement with practice, through meeting with with as many stakeholders as we can, ranging from the very rare public actors we can still talk to and who still care for the public domain, to professional syndicates, namely the Order of Engineers and Architects and the Order of, uh, I mean, the Bar Association, the lawyers. We're also trying to engage with international organizations and UN bodies, INGOs and NGOs. These groups that are at the forefront of the reconstruction, given the collapse, I would say, of public institutions with, within the context of the economic and financial collapse Lebanon is living currently, and the complete delegitimization of the state and its institutions and, uh, and the corruption they're associated with. So at the Beirut Urban Lab, we're mainly working on three fronts. First is data collection and sharing. So we're building on a database we've been uh, operating for the past two years, which includes layers of information about the city. Uh, and we're partnering with, with a multiplicity of actors to enrich it with more layers and to share it in open access with the public. Because we really believe that the, product the production of this georeference data set about the city is a foundation of work towards political change, given we don't have public data about the city or any city in Lebanon, actually. Uh, as advocacy planners, we're producing data and sharing it with all possible components of people engaged in collective action towards change. And we're producing data through a range of methods, qualitative and quantitative, with a big focus on fieldwork, observation, and surveys. And we also visualize and map this data. Uh, ultimately, we want this data to produce, uh, to, to contribute to the formation of an observatory of the reconstruction, through which we will be tracing and mapping the process of reconstruction across sectors, actors, and procedures. The second front we're working uh, on is uh, more localized, I would say, and more applied. So we're developing a methodology of work in, um, at the neighborhood scale uh, that uh, is a methodology of recovery. And we're doing this using citizen science methods and um, uh, in the aim of co-producing knowledge with the community and uh, trying to ensure a people-centered and inclusive recovery process whereby the people targeted are the most disadvantaged groups. So refugees, migrants, children, people with disabilities, female-led households, LGBTQ groups in the neighborhoods we're working in. And this is a long-term process. So we're just starting off with that one. 
And the third front we're uh, working on is um, uh, a visioning exercise, which actually is a series of exercises we're uh, going to be launching in the next uh, weeks, which uh, is an attempt to envision uh, the post-blast city, another Beirut, uh, that would be imagined with other urban and economic relationships linking neighborhoods and places and infrastructures, uh, the ones that are much more inclusive, more ecological, more viable, and more equitable. So as you see, uh, along these three fronts, our goals are quite clear. We want to advocate values and goals of justice, inclusion, and viability. We are doing this through multiple modalities and fora, through teaching, courses and studios to students through mentoring researchers and practice practitioners, organizing webinars and workshops, participating to a range of professional meetings through consulting, writing op-eds, policy briefs, producing open access data sets, networking, advocating, organizing, and I'm sure I'm forgetting other venues as well where we're trying to infiltrate. So you see that uh, uh, we're, uh, we're engaged in these multiple fronts. In the slides, I wanted to show you some of our maps and some pictures of our work on the ground. Uh, you can see that on our website, BeirutUrbanLab.com. And um, I think I'm going to add with that, end with that. Sorry for lacking the images. And I'll try to share that um, if we have time later in the Q&A very quickly. There are five slides. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mona. And I think um, any of you out there um, interested in ways in which you mobilize to, to, to fight against environmental injustice or social injustice generally will find much there uh, that perhaps we can, we can go back to the discussion. So thanks very much for that. So now on to Carly. Thank you, Michael, and, and thank you so much, Mona and Muna, for those powerful presentations, um, really bringing the issues to life as always. And I'm eager to get to the interactive part of this event. And as Mona said, by design, we really push to bring together scholars of all different disciplinary backgrounds and push against those boundaries. So um, I'm so excited about the distinct viewpoints we've heard already and the relationships between the topics and themes discussed. Uh, as we make our way towards that discussion, I'll first share some thoughts and questions on today's topic, including from a perspective that critically analyzes international law's role in worsening or prolonging environmental injustice, as well as drawing on linkages between examples of environmental injustice in the Middle East and elsewhere, specifically first focusing on Iraq. And I want to start by noting a development that might initially seem a bit divergent from our focus, but that I promise will connect back shortly to all these pressing topics at hand. So last week, Honduras became the 50th country to ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, enabling that treaty to be entered into force and to become legally binding for its state parties. Significantly, however, the global powers known to possess nuclear weapons are, of course, not parties to this treaty, notably including the US, UK, Russia, France, and China. Nonetheless, this entry into force is viewed as a major occasion within and beyond the realm of international law. But to revisit a longstanding debate, how are we to understand the impact of a treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons that has been ratified only by states that do not have them? whether by circumstance, by choice, or by a combination of factors. A treaty that does not legally impact the, uh, the majority of states, but um, 
the small minority of states in particular who haven't practiced largely on inhibited access to nuclear weapons. So in recognition of the treaty's 50th ratification, the International Committee of the Red Cross put out a series of compelling short videos on Twitter and other social media platforms. And they've shared these with a preamble that says, there's no plan, no team of heroes coming to save you. We simply couldn't cope if the nuclear bomb is used again. That's why a nuclear ban is the only option. And the video goes on from there to show a gripping illustrated imagining of what the immediate aftermath of a nuclear strike would look like. Disaster, death, injury, cut off water and electricity, destroyed equipment from ambulances and hospitals that cannot even be used to aid survivors, maps that don't matter because borders and boundaries delineating neighborhoods and cities have been wiped away, and the ethical question of sending medical professionals and teams to assist survivors when radiation exposure is guaranteed for all who enter the affected areas. One of the videos shows the immediate effects, but then also jumps into the future. At one week, it says hospitals are overwhelmed and people are dying of acute radiation sickness. At one year, radiation has seeped into the water and the soil and the food supply is contaminated. In 10 years, many are dying from leukemia and various cancers that developed. And in 70 years, those who manage to survive worry about passing on the effects of radiation exposure to their children and future generations and their families. And when watching this, one obviously remembers the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the coverage of that for which the 75th anniversary was just marked. But one could also immediately think of places in the world that have been unjustly bombarded, even if not necessarily through the use of nuclear weapons. The images of destruction will certainly resonate far too powerfully for those in Lebanon and Palestine, Yemen and Syria and other locations that have each been uniquely impacted by the violence of wars and colonialism. But specifically to turn to the points in this video on nuclear weapons regarding inescapable long-term health impacts, radiation exposure, cancer, and birth defects, Iraq and the aftermath of US-led invasion and occupation is one place that immediately comes to mind. Of course, a single blast with a flash of blinding white light did not occur in Iraq. However, the rate of children born with birth defects in Fallujah, for example, has been understood for years now to be higher than the rate of birth defects in Hiroshima after the atomic bombing of 1945. And yet the slow, dangerous, and ongoing trajectory of toxic exposure in Iraq, which has been documented by scholars such as Omar Duwashi and Kali Rubai and others, has been obfuscated by a victor's narrative dominated by the U.S. that has attempted to blur the clear linkages between the Iraq war and the devastation being experienced by Iraqis as countless children are born with disastrous and often fatal cancers, malformities, and malfunctioning vital organs. Only now, in 2020, over 17 years since the 2003 invasion, a bill has been introduced in U.S. Congress that aims to provide access to care for U.S. veterans exposed to toxins in overseas conflicts, including Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as more than 30 other countries to which U.S. military personnel have been deployed. That's only since 1990. The bill names asthma, all cancer, emphysema, lymphoma, and many other conditions as service-connected. Even care for its own veterans has been fiercely resisted by the U.S. government for nearly two decades. And again, that's if we only count from 2003, we could, of course, go back further. But a lingering and obvious question remains. What about justice and health care and assistance for Iraqis who were not deployed to Iraq for a set period of time, but who remain in their homes drinking water and breathing air that has poisoned them? In the context of research I've been working on regarding toxic exposure in Iraq, I spoke with Dr. Mojgan Savabi Esfahani, one of the lead authors of a study from earlier this year that demonstrated that living near an active U.S. military base in Iraq is associated with increased likelihood of congenital anomalies in infants and children.
And one of the things that she emphasized in our conversation is the severity of impacts on Iraqis who have been forced to contend with exposure to depleted uranium and toxins from burn pits for decades now. She noted the severity of this type of sustained, consistent exposure for young children and for children born to mothers who have been surrounded by these toxins while pregnant in comparison to exposure for military personnel who have devastating health impacts that are documented, but who were exposed comparatively so very briefly. The situation in Iraq is one that pushes us to reconsider how we truly understand a decolonial environmental justice framework and the ways in which the concept and practice of environmental justice risks being subsumed under a narrative of environmentalism that is depoliticizing and privileges the impact of singular crises and events over the equally or more devastating damage done by protracted injustice that um, not only is about inequitable access to resources, but also about inescapable contamination. And in thinking about how to frame and do environmental justice work in line with the vision of de decolonization, I would argue exposure to toxins is not even an adequate framework or language to continue to use. In Iraq or other places such as Gaza, where water contamination is a major challenge in the context of the blockade imposed on the Gaza Strip, toxic exposure does not capture what people are experiencing. Exposure suggests forced contact with contaminated substances. Yes, there's no way that can ever be good when you hear that. But in the cases we're talking about today, people are not merely exposed, but rather are drenched or saturated for years in inescapable conditions of confinement in which their health is constantly threatened and under siege. Just to step back a bit and, and look um, a little bit more historically, environmental justice as an academic area um, in the US in particular has revolutionary roots in connection with the civil rights movement and is driven by the work of Robert D. Bullard and others who spearheaded the documentation of clear links between racism, corporate pollution, governmental neglect and public health and disease. As Bullard and others have noted, their powerful work came initially not out of theoretical research, but was sparked when black communities were confronted head on by toxic encounters simply because they had been deemed expendable by companies and by their governments due to racism. And in Iraq, we see an iteration of how the US military has deemed Iraqi lives expendable. In the time of the climate crisis, so much positive work has been done to show how already marginalized communities will be the most severely impacted by the effects of climate change. But at the same time as there has been increasing awareness in media and popular discourse, finally, about the climate crisis, there has also been a fixation on activism that is visible in cities like London, New York, Paris, and so on. And the dominating rhetoric is still largely rooted in threats of what is to come and the idea of protecting future conditions and future generations. Now, these points are vital and these protests essential, but they are deeply interconnected with other less visible realities of environmental injustice on so-called local scales that are actually interconnected and international in nature. And these conditions are already being experienced by civilians in Iraq and Palestine and Yemen and in many other places in the Middle East and beyond across the world. The subject of this event, I think, invites us to question how do we truly decolonize our understanding of environmental justice in ways that are substantial and true to a decolonial outlook in ways that don't dilute the power of decolonial terminology and approaches. Because discourse dominated by the idea that climate change will affect all of us is not alone sufficient when environmental injustice driven by the same forces and powers as the climate crisis is already affecting the lived daily realities of so many who are actively resisting 
engaging and powerful, though often again, less visible ways, given the extreme and brutal pressures on their daily survival. And of course, when we're thinking about toxic saturation, birth defects and disability, we're talking about communities that are often deliberately marginalized. Environmental justice in much environmental studies discourse is still often framed as a facet of the field, an important part increasingly, but merely a part nonetheless. How do we achieve an understanding of environmental studies that rightly sees environmental justice and health impacts as fundamental and building on Muna's point about the obvious yet overlooked connection between humans and nature and the ways in which these categories are unjustly separated out? something I'm looking forward to discussing more. How do we do this work so that the goal is not solely just to radicalize or rectify environmental studies as a discipline, but to put environmental justice at the top of agendas across numerous disciplines? And I think Mona showed a really interesting approach to that in the realm of urban studies. And on that note, I want to touch on international law and how the field of international law could engage with environmental injustice more meaningfully than it has historically. International law is so often presumed to be a source of rights, uh, but it has been at the very least useless for Iraqis who are experiencing protracted injustice and violations in the form of health impacts, and also largely irrelevant in many cases of denial of water access, such as in Palestine, which is what much of my work is focused on, but I think these critiques and interventions about law apply to environmental and colonial injustices across the board. Beyond just uselessness and irrelevance, international law plays roles that have often proved to be more than irrelevant, but actually damaging, given how international law is historically embedded in structures of colonialism, imperialism, and marginalization. As M.A. Césaire wrote, no one colonizes innocently, and no one colonizes with impunity either, in his famous work, Discourse on Colonialism, in which he charts the barbarism that is intrinsic to all colonial projects. Can international laws that grew out of such projects evolve to be part of authentic, decolonized environmental justice? Well, as the legal scholar Anthony Angie has asked, what does it mean to claim that international law governs sovereign states when certain societies were denied sovereign status? And what continuing effects follow from this exclusion? I think we see many of those effects in the forms of the injustices being talked about today. A community need not be legally denied sovereign status at present in order to suffer from the types of harms and exclusions that Angie describes. Legacies of colonialism, slavery, and apartheid persist, even if communities formerly subject to illegality have since been granted legal status in some, though certainly not all, cases. What meaning can legal recognition and status possibly have for a population still saturated in unsurvivably toxic conditions? In my research, I'm interested in the concept of de facto statelessness and how conditions of war and toxic saturation create rightlessness and de facto statelessness, even if people are technically still in possession of citizenship rights, building on the work of Hannah Arendt, which argued that the only human right that actually matters is the right to have rights, which becomes meaningless and less enforced and protected by governments. Environmental injustice is so severe in places like Iraq, it unquestionably strips human rights and civil rights of their meanings. How does international law seek to remedy this and how can it do more? Well, some examples, the International Criminal Court in 2016 issued a policy paper emphasizing prosecution of crimes that result in illegal exploitation of natural resources or the illegal dispossession of land. Um, additionally, just last month, the ICRC issued new guidelines on the protection of the natural environment during armed conflict, something I and other researchers and activists had advocated for for a while now. But how can it be ensured that these sorts of developments do not 
only recognize the links between war, the environment and health, but actually go beyond this in order to achieve reparations, including compensation, for example, for people affected by environmental injustice, and to lead to the implementation of policies that are not merely informed or marginally or superficially influenced by the people most affected by toxic saturation, but policies that are in fact steered by these communities. In our interview, Dr. Savabi Esfahani also emphasized the link between Iraq and another seemingly endless war that's often invoked in this context, the war in Vietnam. And it's worth noting that the U.S. bill that seeks to provide care for veterans affected by toxic exposure since 1990 would amend Title 38 of the U.S. Code, which outlines veterans' benefits and would specifically amend the same section that provided for Vietnam veterans exposed to Agent Orange. So between Vietnam and Iraq, we see important parallels. Of course, the brutality of colonialism dating back historically, but also denial of the impacts of toxins used on civilians uh, relatively quite recently. Um, and that denial persists very strongly. Vietnamese civilians were of course devastated by dioxin, the chemical component of Agent Orange and numerous other herbicides used to clear the forests of Vietnam. The Vietnamese, Vietnamese writer Bao Ning has noted how with the arrival of Agent Orange in Vietnam, Green leaves turned black and crumpled, grass withered and died. I witnessed many cruel scenes in the war, he writes, but the brutal massacre of nature is what comes back to me most often and disturbs my sleep. So again, emphasizing that important connection between people and the environment and the dangers of separating those out. Only recently, over four decades since the end of that war, has the US embarked on initiatives to clean up that so-called mess. Images of children born with birth defects in Vietnam are harrowing and similar to images coming out of Iraq. In poetry and literature by Vietnamese and Iraqi writers, as well as by Japanese writers after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's a shared emphasis on the long-term effects of forced toxic saturation during war. In Sinan Antoun's poem to an Iraqi infant, for example, he asks a child whether they know that their tomorrow has no tomorrow, that their blood is being used as ink on new maps, that they are subsisting on their mother's milk, which is bursting with depleted uranium. And uh, to begin to conclude in her work regarding the pain of others, Susan Sontag in the context of analyzing war photography and journalism wrote, it is intolerable to have one's own suffering twinned with anybody else's. And I just bring up that quote to note that by invoking these links between Vietnam and Iraq and Japan and Palestine and elsewhere, I'm not advocating for a comparative academic approach or an approach that in any way risks collapsing the key differences and unique aspects of these situations. What I am advocating for is an environmental justice framework that not only allows room for the people impacted by these injustices, as well as other activists and scholars to make these links, but for a radicalized framework of environmental studies across disciplines that sees justice as inherently woven into its focus, which should be inevitable, but in a pedagogical context, the standard teaching of environmentalism is often to have environmental justice as a week on a syllabus, or in an environmental studies anthology to have a single chapter among a dozen. And these exclusions manifest in a policymaking context as well that profoundly impacts people's lived daily realities in which the damage to the environment in this policy framework is wrongly seen not as a key matter of justice, but as only one category among many in the bigger context of the ravages of war. So I think this discussion so far has been incredible for thinking through ways in which we flip that framework, and I look forward to discussing further. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Carly. You, you really threw the gauntlet down there for any legal scholars out there, so I'm hoping that will um, 
um, stimulate some questions. That was fantastic. Thank you. We do have already a couple of questions. Uh, some of the questions have come through the chat box. So can I ask, if you want to ask a question, please use the question and answers box. Um, as we've already got a couple of questions, I'll, I'll just say a few things first in terms of uh, uh, discussion and, and hopefully leading to the discussion, uh, the general discussion. I really enjoyed all those three presentations very much. So I thank all of you for that. Um, I think one of the things that we, um, you've all done is, is, is think about languages and disciplines and viewpoints. And each of the terms, environment, justice, injustice, is kind of uh, uh, problematized when we think about their application to, to, to the Middle East. And in fact, one of the questions is, should we even be using the term Middle East uh, uh, by, by Lamis Jamil? And it's, because that was also arguably an Orientalist imaginary and that has a particular political effects. And we might come on to that. Uh, so I think each of you is, has, has, has um, invited us to think uh, you know, about environmental justice in a way which um, focuses uh, which focuses on, I would say, the kind of what we call the historicity of environmental injustice. In other words, understanding particular impacts in, in these lands, on these peoples in different ways. And that means, I think all of you have talked about understanding injustice as a process or a structure rather than simply a set of events. And, and, and not just simply an issue specific thing. So environment is, is more than an environment in a way. It's about the whole political economy and culture. Um, and so all of you in different ways have talked about injustice is received both materially and symbolically, okay? I mean, Muna used that, that, that very vivid kind of image of, of uprooting, physical uprooting, uh, uh, material uprooting, economic uprooting, social uprooting, cultural uprooting, ecological uprooting. It, it's, it's, it's a very um, visceral term to describe not just the uprooting of olive trees, the Palestinian olive trees and groves, but all sorts of other processes of dispossession and uh, misrecognition. And, um, uh, um, but without being trying to look for sort of some of the positives. Uh, Mona talked about ways in which you can mobilize against injustice, um, including, I think, given this is a, uh, um, a webinar taking place, or at least being hosted by a university, the ways in which researchers, academics, uh, scholars, a citizen sort of activists can take part in, in assisting those that would want to challenge uh, uh, environmental and other injustices. And, um, in terms of where we look for in terms of governance, Carly, I really enjoyed that, that very frank assessment of law and the, the deficits of law, including international humanitarian law, in terms of the effects of warfare, uh, uh, which unfortunately we're talking about a region which is often exposed to, to warfare, to conflict involving state actors, non-state actors, and the environmental and health effects of, of violence. So not just in terms of military violence, but other types of violence. And I think the, the, the notion of injustice tries to, as you said very, very ably, Carly, uh, exposes us to all sorts of violent effects, which may not be the initial one that we see on the, on the television of, of a military attack. There are all sorts of what are called examples of slow violence, 
things which accumulate over time and, and of course, which some groups are more vulnerable to, another, to others. So as you've got questions coming in, I will, I will ask you to hold those thoughts for the moment. I don't think there's any question there anyway, actually, just a series of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, statements trying to pull together the, the assessments. So at least in terms of the initial questions, I had that one from, from, from Lamis Jamir was, was, was the colonizing uh, environmental injustice in the Middle East means should we also think about the ways in which we imagine the region as, as an environmental entity or geographical entity? Is it, you know, is Western Asia more appropriate? Um, and I'll just add another question, which I think is, is directed, it was directed to Muna uh, uh, from Lina Ishmael, who said, um, what does it mean in the Middle East to decolonize climate change? But if the others of you have things to say on that, perhaps, you know, you're welcome to join. So we'll leave it with those two questions first, and then I'll collect some others up. Thank you. Who wants to kick off? I can jump in, though. Okay, I don't know sure. if you want to yes, take, uh, take that question. Um, maybe we'll just we'll go around. We'll keep it lively. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, Michael, for, for synthesizing everything um, so eloquently and, and again, really amazed by um, what everyone here shared. Um, just briefly, I guess, to kick off the responses. Absolutely. I'm really interested to talk about language and how, I think, as Michael pointed out, sort of each of these pieces of the terminology we're using are problematic in their own way. So when we think about the environment, thinking again about what Muna raised about the separation between humans and nature and how that's deeply problematic, and I think comes up really interestingly in Mona's work about urban environments and also thinking about built environments as well. And um, I think, you know, a discussion about working towards alternative language is perfect in this context of decolonial frameworks. I think a lot of it um, has to do with, you know, relying on what uh, the precedent is and relying on what is recognized. And as we know, that's a slippery slope and there's um, dangers in that and, and language might seem minor in the scheme of things, but law for example, is language. It's all about how these um, things are worded in the minutia and the breakdown of, of who is included and excluded. So um, definitely, I think, advocating for a, a progressiveness to the language and a reform and revolutionizing of that is an integral part of the discussion. I'd like to hear what my colleagues say about that. The only other thing I wanted to add initially was um, with the question about decolonizing um, climate activism. I know some of the most incredible inspiring work that I've seen has been when local groups are able to connect with each other. So when we have activism against the pipeline in the U.S. and indigenous communities working on that, for example, linking up with um, black and brown communities in the U.S. disproportionately affected by the pandemic and with communities in Palestine facing the very injustices that Muna so articulately explained. Um, I think when these groups band together and bring their so-called local, and I keep saying so-called because as we know, it really isn't merely local, but these local experiences of injustice, when these links are made and then that unified force is brought um, to, to work towards climate justice, I think that um, is where a lot of the really promising just and decolonial work is taking place. But I'll pause there. And before we, before we jump there to that issue of climate justice, because it actually corresponds with a, with a question uh, which uh, Kali Hamid has just asked, which is um, how can these local initiatives work towards environmental injustice issues which cross borders as in climate change? So I think I would say to Muna and, and also to Mona, because she was talking about the, this sort of local mobilization 
um, how do you how do you think about how you scale that mobilization to address the issue? Muna, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks. Uh, Thanks to all and uh, thanks Carly now for your kind of uh, good introduction into the topic of decolonizing climate change uh, mobilization. And yeah, on that point, I also really, um, I, I agree with you and uh, kind of thinking about, uh, you know, the context specific conditions uh, through which we understand such a, a, an issue that has been framed globally that has dissipated you know the political and context specific um, you know conditions of uh, of how different people are uh, actually dealing and uh, combating with climate change differently and I think that's really important because uh, depoliticizing issues on climate change actually um, like is, is is a big is a big uh, um, uh, it's a big problem, and especially when uh, when actually framing Palestine uh, as a climate uh, or framing framing Palestine as a as a case of cl climate justice actually starts doing these linkages with other communities around the world and other uh, marginalized groups uh, that are facing the brunt of climate change at the. Um, at, at all levels. So I think it's really important to speak of the politics of climate change and to put it at the forefront that context matters, that local uh, local experiences matter, but at the same time to open uh, open it up for inter intersectional solidarity and uh, and and common uh, common mobilization and and kind of stronger linkages. And I do agree that uh, you know a lot of uh, cases where that started to happen were like this kind of. Uh, uh, communication and channeling of, of uh, mobilization uh, ideas and strategies has started happening with Standing Rock, for instance, where Palestinian presence was really uh, seen uh, there uh, and where like that linkages started kind of popping up for even Palestinian Americans who maybe have been part of, you know, that living in that settler colonial space for very long, but never really understanding the position, their position, positionality there. Um, and I think another thing is that the risk of the current kind of, uh, let's say, um, of um, the normalized climate change uh, mobilization is that it seeks to depoliticize, it takes to like unify, uh, but I do find it very problematic to do so. And this is what kind of a call for decolonizing uh, climate change uh, mobilization and action would be through, you know, this framework of justice uh, where, uh, con where context would matter, uh, colonial legacies will come to the forefront, not as a historical event, but kind of as ongoing process of, of dispossession. Um, and kind of really, um, uh, again, go back to the collective and to that socio-ecological uh, dynamics and relations where we are part of and where we have responsibilities uh, in, uh, rather than individualistic actions or, uh, or um, yeah, actions and, and, uh, um, and policies uh, that kind of this also framing of environmental governance today uh, actually uh, prefers. Um, so I think that's what I have to say for now, but uh, we'll see if there's something else comes up. Thank you very much. Mona, is that, do you have anything to add? Perhaps on, perhaps on this question about sort of uh, with mobilization, the, the choice of scale when you, when you think about, because you, you mentioned about the 26 municipal elections. So there are choices made by activists as to which is the appropriate scale to, to, mm -hmm. to mobilize on. Well, yeah, actually, I wanted to, to reflect more on the existing uh, transnational networks that mm. already exist um, 
maybe they don't have a territorial dimension, but they exist through a lot of exchanges between activists that uh, happen in multiple ways and exchanges where activists know each other, read about each other, consult each other. There's a lot of learning happening and what the literature re refers to as policy mobility is happening, I would say, among the environmental activists I've, I've worked with and urban activists. So there are connections that are national and that transcend uh, already. And I think these are very important to document present than uh, we think. And I don't think the literature documents them enough. Uh, the, the number of people who know each other in these circles is quite astounding. Uh, upscaling and intersections are very important for effectiveness of social mobilizations. We've seen that in many cases. I'll speak about Lebanon, where the last uh, uprising of October 2019 was uh, multi-centered and transcended the capital city. And uh, this is also what uh, gave it a lot of impetus, where intersections between multiple profiles of activists was very strong too. So I, I'm completely aligned on what Muna and Parli said about the importance of this in collective action. But at the same time, we have so much uh, 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 so much violence and repressive regimes that even when this happens, it doesn't lead to uh, to change or to a reversal of action. And I think Lebanon is an excellent case study where you know we did everything by the textbook, and we coalesced and we intersected. <laughs> we did mm -hmm. everything, and still, mm -hmm. you know, the the power of the repressive uh, regime uh, was so strong that we were not able to. This was not translated in any effective political change. So we're also working against uh, against uh, appar uh, apparatus and systemic uh, uh, systems of. Uh, I mean. Uh, ingrained systems of inequalities and repressive regimes that are extremely powerful and able to reproduce themselves in such uh, uh, impressive ways that I don't know what else could be done in terms of mobilization. So I thought it was important to raise that as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that that's an excellent point because uh, some of the environmental justice scholarship presumes a sense of agency uh, uh, in, which is, uh, which works in perhaps where the, the original historical American context, although it doesn't, it doesn't always work there actually, to, to tell the truth, but that it's, it's somehow transferable. And particularly when you're dealing with state structures, which are very powerful and hegemonic and, and nakedly repressive, then it means the strategies available uh, are, are, are really, really challenging. I had a, a couple of questions here about Iraq, but maybe they might generate a some wider sort of uh, um, relevance. Uh, um, so to Carly initially, uh, Nura al-Shibli, um, the uh, question around, actually this was from the chat box, about the detrimental health and environmental effects in Iraq. There's, it was with the questions about, there's a whole legacy of effects there. It's not just the US strikes, there's the Iran-Iraq war, uh, there's the 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 the, the, the regime's uh, chemical warfare, drainage of the Mesopotamian marshes, you know. So there's there's a whole assemblage of environmental injustice there. So how do we kind of approach that uh, uh, in that kind of 
holistic way, uh, we might say. And, and the second was um, somebody, uh, Mohammed Bilal, who enjoyed your um, talk about the, or presentation about the, this, this environmental toxic sort of landscape, uh, but asked, what are there, are there any enforcement mechanisms there with international humanitarian, I, I presume international humanitarian law, um, although you, you talked about some in terms of civil law uh, uh, in the States as well. So perhaps if I direct those to you initially. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, excellent questions. And, and thank you. I think it was uh, Nora, you said, who, who asked the question about Iraq. That's absolutely right. Obviously, you know, there's limitations on, on time to be able to go into sufficient depth with the long history there. But it's really important to emphasize um, the complexity and, and the layers and the nuance of that situation and, and the other examples invoked and, um, you know, Saddam Hussein's weaponization of water and the violence by non-state groups. You know, as Michael mentioned, there's a lot of different um, factors going on. I think what we're trying to do here is complementary with that approach. And I think in, in the writing and, and further research of the scholars here, you, you really see that come through with Iraq specifically, but with all the other cases. And I, I saw some other comments in the chat referencing other examples saying, um, you know, what about um, this place that is forgotten or this place that's out of the limelight right now? And I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I wish and maybe we will have a series of panels where we can systematically and more fully go through each of the examples because I think. Unfortunately, part of building a decolonized environmental justice framework that escapes some of the traps that Michael pointed to specifically is about building a framework and an outlook that actually expects environmental injustice. Now, not normalizes it, not says that, oh, okay, this is something that we're just going to have to accept and work around, but that actively expects that this is the norm for more people than not, and this is what people are contending with. And I think that um, plays in nicely with uh, Muna's points about the, the uprooting that is going on and the uprootedness, because I think that's um, something we see with the damage being inflicted, but then that idea of uprooting is also something that we see come back around with the resilience and resistance and activism at play. So just connecting some of those ideas um, and, and happy to talk more about Iraq um, if I can, but in, in the interest of time, I'll first just go to the next question. Um, thanks, Mohammed. So yeah, about international law, um, keeping it relatively brief, but I, I don't um, dismiss international law fully, though some scholars do. And I think, you know, there, there are legitimacy to those arguments. But I think, and, and many others have argued, if there is a chance for activists and communities to force international law or anything else, at least partly to work for just people-driven goals, then we should take advantage of every framework we have and try and mold that framework to achieve those goals. Now, it's not sufficient alone. I'm not saying that's entirely possible, but I'm saying that if there are ways, for example, specifically with reparations and compensation to push the international system to achieve at least that limited kind of justice, then that is something worth pursuing. Um, one example, um, this is more pointing out something problematic than necessarily something uh, purely positive again, but um, you know, there's been critiques about the trust fund for victims being housed within the International Criminal Court because of the flaws with that structure and pushes towards um, international justice being able to provide reparations in other decentralized ways. Um, there is material within international humanitarian law, within the Geneva Conventions, um, pro prohibitions against you know, violence to civilian populations and um, water and agricultural 
equipment that would be damaging to the civilian population. And there is um, a pretty expansive body of international water law, which which I've written about a, quite a bit, but um, it's the disconnect and the lack of conversation, if you will, between these different areas that I think in the legal realm creates a lot of the problems. Um, but even more importantly, I think um, activism is answering a lot of these gaps in meaningful ways, whereas the law itself at the international scale is moving quite slowly. But I'll I'll pause there. I will just before um, allowing um, uh, Munel Mona to come in is it's perhaps because there was another question here, which is more general. Um, in uh, actually, it's from 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 Carly Hamid again. Obviously, enjoyed our, our session so much with with another question. Yeah, and this is about the the the, um, uh, uh, the, the extent to which uh, uh, so-called mundane uh, practices with environmental damage, whether oil, gas, exploitation, construction, the Gulf states mentioned. Um, there's, there's an environmental justice uh, challenge from, um, to, to kind of, and, and I'm interpreting this partly, this question, by the notion of the uh, idea of sustainability. And we know all about the idea of sustainability and in international discourse, and sustainability is the means by which uh, many power wielders or brokers sell environmental responsibility. So I think the, the, the question here, uh, we can think perhaps about other examples across the region is that is, is sustainability something which is useful to the term or, or thinking about environmental justice? Was it something which might impede environmental justice or does it depend on the context? I will, I will open that up, uh, Muna. Or Mona, I don't know if you've got Sorry, any. I can't have my camera on right now, but uh, yes, uh, I just want to kind of follow up on a few of the comments that uh, Carly made about uh, international law and uh, international humanitarian law, and kind of yes, uh, kind of uh, the fact that they are needed as as tools to you know rectify and to help to account. Uh, you know, for instance, environmental violations um, and human rights violations. Uh, however, I think, as we know, in the case of Palestine, like a lot of that has kind of gone to deaf ears and people, and I think it, at a certain extent, relying heavily on that as a framing, uh, you know, as a framing of environmental issues can be a bit problematic because it really uh, undermines, uh, depoliticizes communities as well um, uh, in their quest for uh, seeking environmental Environmental justice on, in other forests. So I do think that uh, it's um, mobilization has really took a step back in Palestine, if we really specify the case, uh, because of that kind of depoliticization and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, this is kind of the role of others to, to, to carry out, whether professionals, uh, state actors and, and governmental institutions. Um, so the, the role of the citizen becomes less and less. And this is where I think re uh, kind of uh, re empowering uh, um, uh, that kind of collective spirit, I think is, is really key, especially when we uh, uh, when we first uh, produce knowledge about environmental issues and environmental uh, injustices, but also when we mobilize against, uh, you know, the uh, perpetrators of that, whether it's state agencies or whether it is corporations, multinational corporations or others. Um, that's uh, one point uh, that I wanted to make, but um, the I I think the second point um, I want to say is about 
Uh, well, I don't know much about this um, the exploitation of oil and gas, but I know that this is also um, uh, uh, an issue that, uh, yeah, like it's kind of hidden. And I think one thing is uh, that really allows it to be hidden is kind of this uh, kind of concretization of that type of, you know, uh, industry and that type of industry. Um, uh, infrastructure uh, of, like that that really plays plays a role as well in it. I had another point that I forgot, but maybe I'll come back to it uh, later on uh, if I have a chance. Oh yes, actually no, I remember it now <laughs> about uh, kind of the like uh, kind of collective solidarity and mobilizations uh, with other issues and kind of real like the need to uh, to go beyond you know the geographical boundaries. Uh, and I, I do believe that is the case that we need to, to do much more in the Middle East, especially because I think being confined with our own, uh, you know, uh, regions and our own uh, environmental uh, injustices, um, we need to, to, uh, to go beyond that and not just, uh, you know, um, mobilize and, and create solidarity channels with with others around the world, but also within, uh, I think I've, I've learned a lot um, uh, personally from, you know, visiting uh, sites in Turkey uh, of the Il Sudam and understanding, you know, the problematics and the, the vast expanse of, you know, such destruction acts of submerging whole communities and cultures uh, because of state uh, centric, uh, you know, hydraulic mission, uh, or rather uh, visiting, you know, the, uh, understanding, you know, more about the Nile and, uh, you know, uh, arrangements uh, that are now coming to the forefront between Ethiopia and uh, and Egypt and Sudan because of the Renaissance Dam. So there's so much that we can learn from. And I think this is where we need a more kind of a concise and collective effort on in academia to to bring to the forefront these issues and not just, uh, you know, as, as Carly said, like just study them in one week when we address environmental justice, but kind of to be a part, part and parcel curriculum on political and critical political ecology and, uh, you know, uh, decolonial methods and methodologies of uh, understanding and studying uh, the Middle East or Western Asia or also that needs another reframing, <laughs> but yeah. Thanks, Mona. I, I, I would on that. I mean, and 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 allow Mona to, to to if she wants to answer because you you started there to address because we we I think we've just got time for one more question and a, a question actually put in uh, in in the um, question and answers box by 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 someone you cited in your presentation, uh, Professor Samir Alutut, who who talked about who asked about where is the source of solidarity going to come from. In the in in the in the 20th century, there was a sort of understanding of class solidarity and internationalist understanding of class solidarity, which now has has disappeared. I'm paraphrasing. So where do we go to to organise that solidarity to articulate lo local global uh, intersections, as 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 you say? So I think you're already talking about that in terms of that kind of networking. But I'm going to open up. And, and we'll have this as the last, last sort of opportunities for comment. I know we could ask other questions. We can go on all night if we wanted to, but I, uh, we have to stop uh, in terms of the uh, um, our allotted time. So, um, who would like to go? Mona, would you like me to say something? Yeah, sure. Yes, well, yeah. Well, thanks to all the questions, actually, they're very engaging. Uh, it's a very compelling question. Uh, it reminds me of the third worldism, right? Uh, mm. um, efforts that existed at some point to try to form a, 
another force uh, of uh, I guess first and uh, and uh, third world and uh, I've, I started re following some of these efforts that were emerging I think in Europe there are attempts to intersect powers by anti-capitalist forces uh, that are interesting to uh, to follow through. I don't know much about them. I also don't know in this moment where uh, a rise of fascism and right-wing um, uh, forces everywhere. I feel like there are so much struggles to do at the local and national scale that these connections beyond, you know, your daily lives of survival are becoming harder and harder. Uh, it would be great, I think, to expand solidarities and to think about the global solidarity fronts. Um, I don't know how possible these are. I think the environmental movement is something to possibly look at, although I'm sure many of you here would critique it, as I've been hearing from what you're saying as well. So um, I don't think I'm the best person placed to answer that question. But I want to echo the uh, the discussion that Muna was having earlier about uh, what's also, I would say the corollary of uh, when we talk about environment, we focus maybe on the natural environment specifically, but I think as someone who works on the urban, the built environment is also key. And, uh, you know, uh, this is where the cycles of capital accumulation happen enormously. And I think the question about the Gulf states and thinking about the oil and gas uh, uh, sector or uh, the industry is very much about one of these cycles of accumulation that gets translated and materialized in the built environment of cities and then financializing further these, this built environment. So for me, instead of thinking through sustainability, I think what we need to do, we need to bring in these this vocabulary of accumulation by dispossession, financialization, the transformation of the social value of land into an exchange value, uh, the commodification of land, the loss of land as a as a common good that needs to be protected. This is what we need to bring in the conversation. Uh, buzzwords, I would say that it's not even a concept, buzzwords like sustainability or governance don't do much. They really serve further to depoliticize the issue as ha has been very well explained by my colleagues. So uh, so I think our, one of the things we, we can do as scholars and people who work on these issues is to, to inform the debate with these words, to make sure that people understand that the, there's a process through which land becomes a commodity. There's a process through which land becomes uh, owned by private developers and the commodity that is exchanged and it becomes it, it, that we're completely dispossessing its, its collective value as it used to be, it used to be shared and it used to be celebrated as a, as a collective good. 
uh, and I think for me this raises the key issue of who protects that value of land that is collective today when the state is at the service of these predatory interests, when the, the multiple institutions of the state become uh, institutions that, in, that enable this market economy, that this predatory capitalism, it becomes the responsibility of these uh, civil society groups, environmental activists, other activists, which doesn't add up. I mean, how much can these group, groups do? They can claim, they can defend, they can uh, inform a debate, they can uh, organize and mobilize. But, but I think the Lebanese example shows it very strongly. If you don't have public ingredients who care to protect this common good and the public interest, it's very, very hard to reach anywhere. There's a glass ceiling that we can't go further beyond. So I'll stop with that. I can jump in. I don't know if Muna had anything else to, to add first, but um, I guess quickly to, to run through these questions, I, I agree with what Mona has said um, with sustainable development and the dangers of that. I mean, I suppose there's somewhat of a pragmatic angle within that, that on a case-by-case -case basis, if there are initiatives that come up that are housed under sustainable development problematically, that perhaps that's an opportunity to make an intervention and say, there's some of the work here that's really good, but why is it being framed in this way and what can be shifted or built upon? But yeah, I think, you know, as everyone here has, has touched on and knows from their own work, in general, and never want to fully generalize, but um, sustainable development and the idea of kind of how can we keep doing everything we're doing without causing too much harm and kind of just get away with continuing to accrue profit is antithetical to all the important work being discussed here. Um, and I think that connects, you know, to the points about industry and corporations and how that's a really fundamental part, of course, that we want to connect that. And also when we're looking at, you know, corporate militaries and, and all these things connect, whether we're talking about war or pollution from the oil and gas industry, um, just to hit that point again, that it, it really does connect in ways that I think in and of themselves could could go on for hours talking about. But um, to get to Dr. Alatut's question just briefly, I think we can and should have another event on this topic alone, but I'll make a few um, brief points just to say, uh, going back to this idea about um, not focusing solely on singular events, but looking at structures and patterns. And I mean, last week we, we had another LSE event um, on states of emergency and crisis conditions. We also talked about Iraq and Sinan and Tum was one of the speakers for that. And I think um, that's something key just to emphasize for thinking through these frameworks again, not um, succumbing to that trap of only focusing on singular events. And I think um, the key is the work and activism being done to shift environmental justice away from being, again, a mere piece of the pie and instead um, creating a, a reciprocal framework in which health, the natural environment, and as Mona said, the built environment and issues of corruption and go national governmental roles are all really a core part of that. I think the pandemic has forced some, certainly not all organizations and institutions at these international levels to, if not confront, to at least be confronted with um, a lot of these connections, discrepancies, and disproportionate impacts. But it's really important, I think, to build on that and ensure that it doesn't just slide into another iteration of depoliticization. Um, and I think uh, the last thing I'll just touch on is international law, again, going back to some of the really important points that Muna added. Um, when looking at the Palestinian 
case, I, I mean, I think you you definitely see a scenario where international law has been deployed to facilitate and prolong statelessness. And um, there's a quote from the legal scholar Jacqueline Baba, who writes, legal identity does not guarantee a good life, but um, the absence of it is a serious impediment to one, something along those lines. And I think in this case, um, Muna's work shows it and, and the work of you know others, I think, in this event and outside of it, that evidence shows that prolonging statelessness is a tactic to aid in the occupying power's acquisition of land in, in Palestine. Um, so in that sense, uh, we really see the what I mentioned with the dangers of the way international law is uh, deployed. But uh, I hope we can get a, qu a copy of these questions from the chat and the Q&A box because I think each of them is, is really rich for further discussion, but I'll, I'll let Muna uh, weigh in as we're pressing up against time. Um, that, I don't want to yeah, reiterate like these great important points. And I do believe that we've so got so much still to kind of uh, go through, especially the questions have been really stimulating. And I feel like we need to do another one of those events. Uh, but I just wanted yeah, to maybe uh, uh, just go back to kind of the point of uh, reimagining, you know, uh, like a Middle East or a, a region where uh, you know, uh, these relationships uh, that we spoke about in the beginning also need to be kind of reimagined and uh, and start working towards it. And I do believe that, you know, a lot of the frameworks that we have talked about and problematized do offer something to help with that. But I think it, it also requires kind of uh, an overall of uh, values, meanings and understandings uh, to to help us get there. And I see in the chat, a lot of uh, people like saying of talking about sustainability and reducing carbon footprint. And I think this type of, you know, uh, uh, narratives uh, are really uh, great, but we need to, again, put it in context, problematize it first of all, and uh, try and uh, try to kind of also decolonize it through, uh, you know, seeing how does it really uh, benefit communities on the ground and how does it really benefit uh, you know, a justice work that's uh, being carried out, whether in settler colonial context or other authoritarian regime context that we're living under. And I think, yeah, one thing is about just, you know, uh, changing patterns of, of consumption, definitely, but also it's about, uh, you know, uh, like putting putting justice at the core of it uh, for, all, for all residents uh, and communities of in the Middle East. Uh, so that's my point. Thank you very much for that, Muna. I'm afraid we have to stop there. And it's a, um, it's a, it's always a good thing where it's it's a, it's you feel frustrated that you have to stop something because you can carry on discussing um, all night, it seems. But thanks, thanks so so much, everybody. First of all, to the to to the panelists, to Mona, Muna, and Carly. Thanks very much for your presentations and your responses to the uh, the questions and discussion. And thanks very much to 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 the to the audience. Uh, for the participants for, your, for those fantastic questions which have generated uh, such kind of uh, such productive discussion and we hope there'll be other comments other events like this yes and uh, we hope we can continue this conversation so thanks everybody